Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The Big Picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a renowned Canadian scientist has gone public with his struggles with alcohol addiction and also with his involvement in a fascinating new experimental treatment that uses deep brain stimulation to cure that addiction. Also, the new year is upon us, so too is the federal carbon tax, but what is this really going to cost Albertans? The cannabis industry says the Alberta government has broken a promise to them and left them scrambling, so what does 2020 hold in store? Some troubling stories in the news recently concerning anti-Semitism. We'll look at how best to combat this scourge. Plus, a new report highlights a growing divide between CEO salaries and the earnings of average workers. Well, as we come out of the holidays and into January, which for a lot of people is uh, dry January, it is a, an opportunity, at least, I guess, to, to reflect on, on our relationship with alcohol, uh, the impact that, that alcohol can have, and how best we can help those who are dealing with addiction. And alcohol addiction is a real problem in this country, perhaps a bigger problem uh, than we realize, uh, given that there are people who do struggle who are still able to, to function, more or less, uh, in their day-to-day lives, and especially professionally. Uh, which brings us to the story of our next guest. Uh, and, and I think when he came public, went public with his own struggles with alcohol addiction, a lot of people were quite surprised, uh, given the impact he has had, not just in Canada, but internationally. Uh, when it comes to uh, work on uh, HIV-AIDS, a lot of the work uh, being done in Africa, especially. Uh, Dr. Frank Plummer is an officer of the Order of Canada. Uh, as a result of uh, some of the work he's done, former director, scientific director of the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. He was involved in developing the Ebola vaccine. But he has uh, spoken publicly about his own struggles with alcohol addiction and is also involved in a really unique experiment an experimental treatment uh, that may, may make it easier uh, for this addiction to be treated. He is the first participant in a trial that involves deep brain stimulation to try and treat alcohol use disorder. So joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program the aforementioned Dr. Frank Plummer. Dr. Plummer, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Uh, so let's uh, go back to, to the... Um, the, the point where you decided to to go public with your your story to talk about your own struggles with with alcohol addiction and your own involvement in this experimental treatment uh what what prompted this for you uh, well the treatment itself the, the surgery was done about a year ago on december 14th a little more than a year ago and uh the hospital sunnybrook health sciences center approached me about uh uh, you know, making my story public to uh, to talk about the stigma of alcoholism, uh, potential new treatments, and and to promote their study and their scientists. At what point did it set in that realization set in for you that that there was uh, that you had a problematic relationship with alcohol? Uh, probably in about 2012, when my liver failed, and I uh, ended up needing a liver transplant. Uh, so at that point, it was pretty clear to me that uh, that I couldn't go on um, as I had been doing, and I needed to do some things. And uh, my wife Joe and I tried uh, many different things, all kinds of counseling, residential rehab programs, uh, different kinds of drugs, and they all helped a little bit for a little while, but uh, nothing kind of solved the problem for me. Uh, so, what led you to this uh, this this surgery and this experimental treatment? Well, my, my addictionologist in Toronto, uh, 
she was worried about me and I was worried about me. And uh, she had heard about this study that, that uh, was just being started at Sunnybrook Hospital. And she thought I might be interested. Uh, and uh, so I got in touch with the, the Sunnybrook people and uh, I, they screened me. Uh, and I was eligible for the study. And so I went with it. It didn't, uh, didn't really take me a lot of decision making, as I recall. All right. So explain the, the premise here, then. What, what is it that, that this is supposed to do? Well, um, there's a part of the brain, uh, one, one on each side, called the nucleus accumbens, and it's uh, important in uh, the whole uh, brain's reward system. And that, that part of the brain becomes kind of uh, miswired uh, when you become addicted to alcohol and other, other substances. And so the idea is to insert little electrodes into that part of the brain, which are constantly on, constantly putting a little bit of electricity in there that, uh, that uh, you know, um, uh, stimulates that reward system and takes away the desire to drink. And have you noticed that? Yeah. Like, oh, is yeah, it working? Sure. It's working. That's, you know, it's changed my life. It's basically saved my life. Um, I think I would be dead by now if I hadn't had that surgery. So how is your life different now? Well, I'm uh, happier than I've been uh, in a long, long time. Uh, I'm working on a book, kind of the memoirs of my research in Africa and my time at the National Microbiology Lab. I'm uh, planning a return trip to Kenya at the end of January. I'm uh, reconnecting now with my friends and family. Um, I'm developed a new passion for cooking, so I'm constantly trying to figure out what's for dinner and uh, enjoying doing that. Uh, so life is pretty rich. Now, what what more than are researchers hoping to learn from this? I mean, is, does it seem like something that could be more widely used? Uh, I think so. Uh, you know, what they're hoping with this uh, so-called phase one trials really to show that the procedure is safe. And I suppose after that trial's finished, they hope to go on to a larger study uh, to assess how effective it is. But in in, in my case, uh, it's been hugely effective. Yeah. What do you think that tells us about alcoholism itself, right? I mean, I think there is a perception that, um, you know, it's about an individual's behavior, that we just, you know, people just need to make better choices. Um, but what does it tell us about the nature of addiction, do you think? Uh, well, I think it sort of points out that addiction is uh, is not some kind of moral failing. Uh, it's not told totally about individual choice. It, you know, the brain becomes miswired, um, you know, when you become addicted to something, whether it's opioids or alcohol or other things. And uh, if you can rewire it, which is what this study seeks to do, uh, then you can uh, have a pretty effective treatment. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, as I understand, for a long time, it wasn't apparent to you that there was, uh, that, you, that you had a problem. And maybe it's just because it, it is so so common, so socially ac- accepted. I mean, is, is, is there an issue here, do you think, about how society perceives, perceives this? Oh, I think there are many issues around how society perceives alcohol use disorder. There's a huge amount of stigma, uh, of course, and uh, which is uh, some people didn't want me to, to say anything publicly about this. Uh, right? But I'm very glad I did, I, and I'm still doing. Uh, and also, I think the, the extent of the problem uh, in our society is not really recognized. If you look around, you know, alcohol is everywhere. It is. Uh, and do you think, though, I mean, you know, for you, realizing, you know, the position you're in, the prominence you have, the platform you have, that, you know, by you coming forward and talking about your own struggles, that maybe that can help help erase some of that stigma? Well, that was very much uh, part of the hope in, in me coming forward. As I said before, you know, some people thought I was um, making a mistake by, by talking about this publicly, but I don't. I don't think that's the case, and I've had nothing but uh, support uh, from everybody I've talked to about this. 
All right, well, it's quite fascinating. So at this point, as you say, I mean, uh, still in the, in the experimental phase, but, um, you know, perhaps something that could be more widely available at some point. What, what is the next step here? Do you, do you know? Uh, I don't know for sure. I would imagine that, the, you know, the Dr. Lipsman and uh, Dr. Jacoby and Dr. Davidson at uh, Sunnybrook will be wanting to do more work in this area. So after they finished this uh, phase one study, though, I would think they would go on to larger studies. Very interesting. Uh, well, we'll watch this closely, too. Uh, Dr. Plummer, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. All right. All the best to you. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Frank Plummer, a world-renowned researcher, best known for his uh, leadership and work in Kenya during the HIV epidemic, involved, as mentioned, in developing an Ebola vaccine, a uh, member of the Order of Canada uh, for his scientific contributions. And now he is, in fact, he was the inaugural patient one year ago, the first trial in North America to investigate deep brain stimulation uh, for treatment-resistant alcohol use disorder. Uh, So deep brain stimulation, DBS, as it's known, uh, can be explained as a type of pacemaker for the brain. The neurosurgery involves implanting electrodes to stimulate circuits of the brain where there is abnormal activity. For AUD, researchers are targeting an area of the brain called the nucleus Acumens, which plays a role in addiction and managing alcohol cravings, as well as mood and anxiety. So still some research to be done, obviously, and getting better understanding of just how effective this is. But as you heard from Dr. Plummer, this has made a huge difference for him. Basically, has saved his life. It's the most notable uh, tax change for Albertans is now the imposition of the federal carbon tax. Now, of course, up until the provincial election last year, Alberta had its own carbon tax. The new government came in with a new approach, scrapped that tax, which then cleared the way for the federal government to say, well, Alberta, since you no longer have a carbon tax, the federal carbon tax will apply $20 a ton. The big difference, though, with the federal carbon tax is that there are rebates. Now, the Alberta uh, version of the carbon tax did have rebates, but those were much more targeted at low-income households. Most Albertans, almost all Albertans, in fact, will receive a rebate through the federal carbon tax plan. The idea is to rebate all of the money coming in. So Alberta uh, Alberta households will see a rebate as a result of this carbon tax. Uh, But it it hasn't abated the controversy, though. The Alberta government's still vowing to fight this carbon tax. It is certainly, I think, fair to say, unpopular here in Alberta. But joining us to talk a bit more about some of these tax changes, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program Trevor Toom, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, also Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Trevor, Happy New Year. Welcome to the program. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. All right. So we go back now to having a carbon tax. I guess we had uh, about, what, I think about five or six months uh, officially without a carbon tax in Alberta. What, what's different about this federal carbon tax versus what we had before? Well, first, it is important to keep in mind Alberta has- has had a carbon tax for well over a decade now. And last year we had two carbon taxes in place and only one was repealed. So we have and continue to have a provincial carbon tax on about uh, two-thirds or so of emissions, the larger emitters, power generators, oil sands, and so on. So what we're really talking about here is just the carbon tax at the retail level for gasoline and home heating and so on. So that's what we'll see at the pump and on our utility bills. And that's what the federal government brought in yesterday. All right, so this is uh, $20 a ton. That's right. And for... we'll rise to 30 on April right. 1st. Uh, but I guess with the, the rate going up, so too will the rebates. That's right. So all the revenue that goes into the federal government on a province-by-province basis is being returned either in the form of direct cash transfers to households, and about 90% of the revenue will be rebated that way, and the other 10% will be sent back in more targeted measures to municipalities, schools, hospitals, universities, um, because of some unique circumstances that, that those individuals or entities face. So the rebate's quite large and available to anyone. So you have to file your taxes to get it. But this year, uh, a single individual is $444. And then if you're married, you get more. If you have more kids, you get more. And if you live outside of Calgary, Edmonton, or Lethbridge, then you get 10% more. Now, that's interesting. And I, there's some confusion around this too, Trevor, in terms of how this is going to work. And, and essentially, then, as you point out, 
Really, as long as somebody's filing their income taxes, then that would make them eligible. Is this going to be paid out in, in just in one lump sum, then? Exactly. It would uh, either result in you just paying less taxes than you otherwise would have when you file, or uh, receiving a larger refund than you would have. So it's a fully refundable tax credit. And I think most of us won't even realize that we're applying for it. I mean, if you use tax software or H&R Block or something, then it's all done for you. But if you're someone who still fills out those tax forms, then you'll have um, an additional form that you will fill out just saying whether you're married or not and how many kids you have, and that will result in uh, the carbon rebate to, to you and your family. All right, so the rebate's not based on, on consumption no. in any way, right? No. Uh, how large the rebate is depends only on the total revenue f- across all Alberta from the federal carbon tax. And then that's just divided up on uh, kind of a family-by-family basis to exhaust all of that revenue. So any given individual, their rebate has nothing to do with how much fuel they buy. So you don't definitely don't need to keep your tax, oh, sorry, your, your receipts from your gasoline purchases and so on. So the rebate in this case is not a refund. And when it comes to, to a carbon tax, I mean, there, there are more obvious direct costs, there are indirect costs. Uh, are, are we able, though, to, to reasonably calculate what, what the cost is going to be for people? So we can get a, a very good handle on the direct costs. There's pretty good data on how much gasoline people purchase and how much natural gas is used for home heating. So, for example, your typical Alberta family will use between 2,000 and 2,500 liters of gasoline per year. So if you know that gas prices are going up 4.5 cents or so now or 6.7 cents on April 1st, then you can figure out what the costs are there. And your typical home also uses about 100 gigajoules for natural gas. We know what the implications of the carbon tax will be there. Where it gets a little more difficult is with the indirect costs because of the prices of other goods Mm -hmm. in the economy going up since everything's delivered on a truck and retail space uses energy to heat and so on. And there are estimates around that, and that might be about a third of the total cost. So all in, at about $30 a ton, which is where we're going on April 1st, it's about 450 to $500 per year uh, in terms of your typical average per family cost. So when we compare the cost versus what most people will be getting back on rebates, where, where does that leave most Albertans? So it leaves most Albertans ahead uh, for two reasons. Energy use is skewed. So to the extent that there are people who have lots of vehicles and larger homes, that pulls up the average amount of carbon taxes being paid. And since the rebate is just distributed evenly kind of across the population, you're going to mechanically have more households below the average carbon tax paid uh, and therefore below the the rebate value. Uh, But the more important reason is that the rebate is also in part funded by carbon tax payments from businesses. So not all businesses will be able to pass on the cost to consumers. Some of that cost will be borne by the business owner, and that's also going into the rebate that individuals receive. Right, and I mean, that also speaks to, to the indirect cost, right? Yeah, that, that people are that That's going to be passed on to consumers. There, there is certainly skepticism, as you're well aware, Trevor, that... How could this rebate possibly offset all of these these indirect costs? There, there's a real belief that, that this is going to, to take a big bite. Yeah, and let me, I guess, cite the, the UCB government put out in November, actually a really well-done report on the broader economic assessment of, of the federal carbon pricing plan uh, applied to Alberta, where they, not just looking, they don't just look at the direct and indirect effects, they also look at the effect on wages and GDP growth and employment. And if you total up all of the costs, uh, your average total all-in cost to your typical Alberta household is about $500 per year, negative. Uh, That's including even the positive rebate that, that those households receive. Now, with that, it's important to keep in mind that any and all climate policy to lower emissions is gonna come with an economic cost. And then the conversation is whether the cost is worth paying. But it's interesting, too, I mean, the amount of attention this issue gets uh, versus other tax changes. And he had a tweet the other day about 
the, you know, the impact of the de-indexing of tax rates in Alberta and, and how households are going to end up paying a little bit more as a result. How does, how does that compare to what we're going to be paying on, on the carbon tax? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point. It's, I guess it's not new in that taxes that are visible get a lot more attention than taxes that are, that are invisible. So the GST and carbon taxes, neither of them are popular because we see them all the time. But in the budget released uh, last October for 2019, had a couple of changes to the way that our personal income taxes are going to be calculated. They're going to first de-index the, the tax system. So the brackets will no longer adjust for inflation. The value of our credits will no longer adjust to inflation. And that has the real effect of um, first bracket creep, where you might find yourself in a higher bracket, even if your standard of living doesn't change, and the credits diminishing in value slowly through time. And that's not nothing. By 2021, that indexing alone is $200 million in revenue to the government. And they're also canceling some tax credits, adding another $100, million, $120 million or so in revenue. So your average household is going to be facing about $150 a year more in personal income tax payments in 2021. And I bet you the overwhelming majority of Albertans won't realize it. So, in fact, that that will end up hitting households harder than the carbon tax, potentially. On average, yeah, Yeah. because the carbon tax revenue is being recycled. And and there's certainly a redistributive effect of the carbon tax. Some win, some lose. But in aggregate, the federal government is not bringing in revenue to fund program spending, whereas the personal income tax changes are bringing in revenue to help lower the deficit. And I actually think that's a kind of a sensible move. It's just interesting that it's getting almost no attention. Yeah, indeed. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Trevor, always appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, there you go. Trevor Toome, uh, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, Research Fellow of the School of Public Policy. Some interesting timing in, in these two stories, uh, because today Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health has confirmed uh, that the first case of severe vaping-associated lung illness uh, has been detected here in Alberta. Now, they're not releasing a lot of details, but they do say the patient has received treatment and is recovering at home. There have been 15 confirmed cases in Canada, uh, several hundred, obviously, in the United States. Uh, now, health officials in the U.S. have begun to pinpoint uh, what's been going on here. Uh, pointing to uh, vitamin E acetate as uh, the source, largely, it would seem, of the problem. Uh, vitamin E acetate included as a, a thickener, a thickening agent in some black market uh, THC vape carts. Um, so, I mean, if, if that's the case, then I think we need to be careful about what our policy response is when it comes to e-cigarettes, for example, or even when it comes to legal cannabis vaping. I think for cannabis users, uh, there is some attractiveness in the idea of vaping as opposed to smoking. Uh, But with all of this going on, governments are a little hesitant when it comes to regulating these products. As such, the Alberta government has thrown a bit of a curveball to the uh, cannabis industry here in Alberta uh, by announcing suddenly that legal cannabis vaping products are going to be banned until further notice. So there's been an indefinite delay now imposed on the industry, which we're anticipating uh, that they'd be able to offer these products. I mean, back in October, when the government announced an e-cigarette review, my understanding is the industry was told at the time that this was going to have nothing to do with cannabis. Now suddenly it does. So the industry scrambling here to adjust. And, and obviously, I mean, it's, it's a difficult time for the industry. Uh, there's been some, some bumps along the road in the first year and a bit of legalization. So just as the industry is starting to get some footing here, um, you know, a bit of a curveball thrown by the Alberta government, as we said. So joining us to talk a bit more about this announcement of what it means and to talk a bit more about where things stand now as we head into 2020. Very pleased to welcome to the program John Carl. He's executive director of the Alberta Cannabis Council. John, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll talk a bit about uh, what, what happened here. When, when did you guys become aware that the Alberta government was was postponing this? this and what, what impact has it had? Well, we found out at the same time as everybody else did. There wasn't um, any consultation with the cannabis sector by the provincial government on making this delay. Um, Obviously, as an industry, we're very disappointed by this because vaping has become such a popular method of consumption of of multiple products, not just cannabis, but 
obviously our focus is on cannabis and um yeah we're we're not any happier about it than any of the other sectors are I mean, obviously, there, there's been a lot of headlines around uh, vaping and THC uh, vaping in particular, what's happened in the U.S. Uh, how, how, to what extent does that or should that shape our policy and, and shape our approach here? I think it should have a massive impact on our policy and our approach. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that the right information is being um, considered by the decision makers within the provincial government. So the the concerns that have arisen and um, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has done a lot of recent work on this. It's caused by something called vitamin E acetate. Mm -hmm. And that is found and created when you are using um, essentially illegal vape containers or vapes uh, that are typically purchased out of China that don't have... Uh, manufacturing regulatory controls on them the same way that the products um, that are purchased locally are, are acquired. Um, so if if you're a vapor, and let's be honest, we're seeing more and more people using vape pens for tobacco or cannabis. If you're one of those vapors, um, you're going to get yourself your vape. Um, you can order it off of eBay um, or Amazon and have it delivered to your home. Um, what you're not getting, though, is the proper manufactured um, containers. So, unfortunately, what this decision is going to do is it's going to drive more people that are insistent on using the vape product into that illegal market, and we're going to see more people get sick. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate concern. As you say, I mean, we mm-hmm. we appear to have pinpointed uh, the, the likely cause of these illnesses in the United States, uh, this vitamin Absolutely. E acetate. So, uh, through regulation, then... Uh, can we ensure that those kinds of ingredients aren't making their way then in, into legal products? Absolutely. And and if you look at the legal products that are being sold, uh, the CDC is very clear that the legal products that are being sold that are regulated do not have this health risk. Now, they, they have the health risk that comes with, you know, smoking or consuming tobacco or consuming any other product. Mm-hmm. But at least this vitamin E acetate, which is really, I mean, it's making people exceedingly sick, yeah. uh, is not present in the legal monitored product. And let's take a step backwards to two years ago when the federal government legalized cannabis. They did so because they wanted people consuming safe, healthy product that wasn't laced with dangerous materials. This is a step backwards. Now, from, it's interesting because uh, back in, uh, I think it was October, the Alberta government announced that it was going to be reviewing the, the rules and regulations around e-cigarettes. Uh, it, right. it didn't appear at the time so that review was going to include cannabis products. So was this uh, kind of a, a sudden reversal from, from the government? Or what were you guys being told at the time? Well, we reached out to Jeremy Nixon, the MLA who was responsible for the review, uh, and directly asked to be consulted and part of his discussion because we knew that whatever decision was made about the tobacco uh, vape products was going to have an impact on the cannabis product. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to have discussions with him and his his people about things like where it can be displayed in a store. Um, we feel it's inappropriate that you can go into a store and you'll see the candy and the bubble gum and the vape products all on one shelf. That's not okay by our by our measure. Right. We also don't like that some of the cannabis products are flavored specifically to target young people. Nobody needs bubble gum flavored tobacco products. That that's that's just not okay. But what we were told is that the review would have absolutely nothing to do with cannabis. Therefore, we were not welcome at the table. Um, we've had several emails with his staff requesting and and quite forcefully. Uh, insisting that we be part of the discussion because it will have an impact on our sector. And we were told uh, as recently as uh, late November that this would have nothing to do with cannabis, therefore we were not going to be part of the discussion. And then here we arrive today, and lo and behold, it's now postponed indefinitely. So we're, we're very disappointed with the way this was handled. Yeah. So what, what kind of a situation now does this leave the industry? And I mean, you know, there, there have been some issues, obviously, uh, some challenges in the industry. And, and I suppose this just adds to the list. But what, what kind of a position does it leave the industry? in? It leaves us frustrated. Uh, I think that's the best word to describe it. Um, we are doing our very, very best to 
grow and develop Alberta's fastest growing sector. Um, since it was uh, cannabis was legalized uh, just over a year ago, year and a quarter, we have created somewhere in the vicinity of eight to 10,000 jobs in Alberta. Now, we know that the UCP government's single largest target is to create employment for Albertans. They, they want jobs. They want to create jobs, and we support them in that decision. We're the fastest-growing sector, and yet we can't get to the table to discuss with them decisions like this that are going to push back our ability to create those jobs in Alberta. We're the only sector that's growing at the rate that we're growing. We want the provincial government's support in this. We want to create clean, healthy products that are not going to endanger the people consuming it. We want to fight the black market. We want Albertans in a safe environment. And we want to produce these jobs and tax revenue for the province. I don't understand why they don't want to talk to us. Uh, now, in the meantime, uh, October, this past October, marked the legalization of, of edible products. Uh, sort of the, mm-hmm. the phase two of legalization. It's taken some additional time to start to get those products onto the shelves of stores, given some of the uh, the, the red tape involved. Where, where do things stand on that now? Well, we're expecting that we're going to see products on the shelves uh, mid to late January. Um, we have heard that from some of our producers that the AGLC has begun purchasing product from them in order to have it available for retailers. Um, because one of the delays that has occurred is that the AGLC is the only purchaser of cannabis from producers in Alberta. So every ounce of cannabis that is bought in Alberta is first purchased by the AGLC and then resold to the retailers. Mm-hmm. So they started purchasing mid to late December, uh, is what we've been hearing, you know, around the 17th to the 20th. And with the Christmas break and everything, we aren't expecting retailers to be able to purchase until probably next week, and they'll probably see it on their shelves in two to three weeks. So it's coming. Uh, it was quite a bit later than our retailers were hoping. They were really hoping that it would be available before Christmas for obvious yeah, reasons. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You don't have to have a doctorate in economics to know that having product on your shelves at Christmas is a good idea. No kidding. Um, <laughs> so... You know, we're, we're a little disappointed by the delay, but we are where we are. We're glad that it's going to be available soon, and I think it's going to be, you know, and this is more my personal opinion than any expertise, but the the edible products will be a much larger market space than um, than smoking ever has been. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see the impact. And, you know, when you look at the challenges of the first year of legalization, where, you know, a number of retailers in Alberta were kind of in limbo with, with some of the regulatory delays, obviously there, there were supply shortages for a while. Have, have we got largely past most of those those challenges? I know there's other challenges that, we, that we've talked about, but in terms of some of those those bumps from the first year, where where do we stand now? Well, I think that a lot of progress has been made, and and I do want to compliment both the industry members and the AGLC for working together to resolve some of the issues that have been there. There's been a lot of good collaboration recently, um, and, and there's a lot of great communication, and, and I have to tip my hat to the people involved there, but I think that we're eventually going to get through it. I mean, this has never really been done before. The last time an illegal product was legalized in Canada would have been, what, the 1920s or 30s when alcohol was legalized. So it's a big learning curve for everybody. Um, I I do understand the AGLC wanted to be cautious and not make mistakes and and worrying about the public safety. Um, And I, I think we'll get there, and I think 2020 will be a much better year for the industry. Uh, than 2019 was in regards to regulation and uncertainty. Yeah, and I, and I suppose, I mean, you know, if we take a step back and look at the situation across Canada, Alberta's probably still, you know, the furthest ahead, or at least certainly Alberta took, I, I think, the smartest approach to regulating this industry. I would agree with you there. Um, the the legislation regulatory model in Alberta is, I think, the best. It's not perfect, but it is, yeah. in my opinion, the best. I, there's, there's some bumps that we have to get through. There's a taxation issue that we have to resolve where the excise tax for the Alberta government is 24.3%, um, which is the highest in Canada with the exception of Nunavut. Uh, but of the, the main provinces in Canada, we are significantly higher than absolutely anyone else. Most provinces are at 7.5%, okay. which are in 243 uh, If we want to overcome the black market and, again, get the laced product off the streets, 
Um, then what we need to do is we need to get that taxation down so that our product is competitive with the black market. And we're hopeful that the province will have those discussions with us here in 2020. Let's hope so. In the meantime, uh, much more at albertacannabiscouncil.ca. John, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. I really appreciate the time and happy new year. All right, to you as well. John Carl, Executive Director of the Alberta Cannabis Council. So uh, some frustration from, from their perspective. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, given, I guess, all this hysteria around vaping-related illness, you know, maybe most members of the public will see some something sensible in what the Alberta government's doing here and in, in taking their time with this. Um, so, yeah, I think reasonable people can disagree on this point. I uh, want to turn our attention right now to a very serious topic, uh, one that, that clearly remains a problem, that being anti-Semitism. Now, there was a horrific attack recently in New York, of course, uh, where five people were uh, attacked uh, with uh, someone armed with a machete, targeted simply because they were Jewish. That happened in, uh, in New York State. In fact, there's been a handful of attacks recently in New York. Of some pretty violent attacks where Jews have been targeted. But it's not just New York. Some numbers out of New York City, though. Of the 421 hate crimes reported in New York City in 2019, more than half were directed at Jews. So there's clearly a problem in, in New York, but there's clearly a problem, well, not just in, in the West. You could say a problem worldwide, and it is really troubling. Uh, there's a, a piece in the New York Times today uh, the idea of uh, kind of a, a solidarity sort of event, Jews and non-Jews walking arm in arm through the streets of Brooklyn. And it sounds as though efforts are underway to make something like that happen uh, this weekend coming up in lower Manhattan. Uh, there's a similar initiative has been launched uh, here in this country at maspic.ca, M-A-S-P-I-K dot C-A. Uh, to try to bring people together to combat the scourge of anti-Semitism. Maspic means enough. That it's time that we say enough. This initiative from the uh, Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs joining us on the line is uh, Shimon Kofler-Fogel, who is president and CEO at the CIJA. Shimon, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, Happy New Year to you, Rob, and it's good to be back on your program. Well, and Happy New Year to you as well. Obviously, we've uh, seen some really disturbing stories in the news, including, of course, this horrific attack in, in New York. I, I mean, it's it can be difficult to make sense of these kinds of, of horrific uh, attacks, but I don't know. I mean, how, how do you respond? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the initial response of, of uh, Jewish communities really across Canada was, was just sort of a sagging of the... Sh- shoulders and 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 a groan oh geez not again um and it's become an all too often occurrence uh whether it's in europe or uh as you as you pointed out in in new york and other parts of the u.s uh fortunately here in canada we've been spared um much of that but like the stats that you uh referenced about new york um jews remain uh, the single largest target of hate uh, here in Canada, uh, as captured by Statistics Canada each year. Uh, and it's a problem that will not go in that way and, and begs us to, to confront in you know, a very deliberate and, and, and thoughtful manner. I mean, it, and what's what's troubling about it too, and and I mean, there, there's there's a few issues we're dealing with here. Obviously, there's there's a rise in, you know, the the far right and, and the anti-Semitism that that emanates from that. But it, what we've seen in in uh, some of these attacks in New York yesterday, there's there's a fringe on what we might call the far left, um, where where we see this. There's uh, obviously uh, extremism. Um, you know, in some elements uh, of the Muslim community where there is, is anti-Semitism emanating. So, I mean, there, there are different sources for it. I mean, it, in a way, it's one problem, but in another way, it's, it's a lot of different problems. So, Rob, I think you have it exactly right. Um, the, what's common to all uh, is 
the targeting of Jews, uh, but uh, what motivates the far right is different than what we would call the so-called progressive community or the extreme left, um, which doesn't focus so much on physical attacks against Jews, but rather tries to marginalize them from mainstream of society. And then there, of course, there is a segment, uh, not uh, the majority of, but certainly within the Muslim community, there is a strain uh, <clears throat> of those who regard Jews as, uh, in effect, the spawn of Satan, uh, and for whom uh, they direct particular animus and, and hostility. Uh, so the solutions for those different uh, uh, kinds of anti-Semitism also require a different approach. Uh, and that's what makes it so challenging. Uh, there's not one fix for, for all manifestations of anti-Semitism. Uh, and it requires uh, what I referred to earlier as a much more thoughtful approach on how to unpackage uh, those, those toxic sentiments uh, in each of those different parts of the spectrum. One common thread, though, I suppose, is the um, the social media effect and, and the ability that extremists have to to spread their propaganda. Um, and and I mean that's you know that, again that represents a challenge. I mean the internet's not going away. Social media is not going away. How do we counter that? So um, that's something that we too have have uh, tweaked to. Um, it is the reason why we've um, called on the federal government. Um, to take steps to develop a uh, national strategy for online hate. Uh, what starts with the Jews never ends with the Jews, so everybody is a stakeholder in us wrapping our heads around the Internet because, as you suggested, anti-Semitism hasn't changed in terms of it being part of of sort of the backdrop or landscape on society for millennia. What has changed is uh, the exponential way in which anti-Semitism has revved up as a result of uh, social media, uh, access to hate on the Internet that allows individuals to become inspired by uh, a whole range of just noxious um, conspiracy theories and 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 hate spewing uh, blogs and so forth uh, that really provide them with with the kind of focus to express their their own animus and and hostility and what we know is that online hate clearly leads to offline violence. Uh, and that's what I think that we have to um, really focus our energies on in terms of coming together uh, with a clear strategy that is led by government but co-ops um, the um, social media giants um, who really provide platforms that are exploited by uh, the hate mongers. Uh, and we have to, we have to find uh, the formula um, that are going to ensure that we filter out uh, that kind of toxicity from what's accessible on, on the net. And in terms of, of a community response, we mentioned this uh, event that's set for, for this weekend in, uh, in New York, kind of a show of solidarity where it's, it's Jews and non-Jews, you know, marching together, um, you know, taking a stand, a very visible and vocal stand. How, how powerful can that be? I think it's critically important. Um, we, too, are sending some represent, uh, representation to join with them uh, in New York uh, on Sunday. Uh, and I think that it speaks to a profound anxiety uh, that is building within the Jewish community. Um, we saw it in Europe. Uh, we see it now crossing the Atlantic uh, into the United States. Uh, and hate knows no borders, so it's only a question of when, not if. Uh, it migrates uh, more forcefully into Canada. So I think that these kind of manifestations of solidarity really do provide uh, the community with some degree of comfort um, that they're not alone, uh, that others uh, share in their pain and in the concern and in the resolve to push back against it. Here in Canada, as, as you mentioned in your, your intro, um, we've taken the view uh, that we should be creating a platform that allows 
all organizations of goodwill uh, within the Jewish community as well as, and perhaps even more particularly beyond the Jewish community, um, to uh, band together, um, to provide uh, resources that are going to allow them to undertake initiatives uh, of an educational nature, uh, of a political nature, uh, that will give communities uh, the tools uh, to be able to um, push back against anti-Semitism and really move the dial on it so that even if we can never eradicate hate, uh, we can at least push it back into the dark corners where they belong and not allow it um, to gain a foothold in mainstream society. And I mentioned uh, this website, masspick.ca. Masspick means enough. Tell us a bit more about that initiative. Well, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. We are um, we are um, uh, gathering together resources, uh, both in terms of financial resources as well as expertise uh, from uh, many of the uh, coalition members um, that will be available to help fund and support initiatives by individual organizations in all parts of the country. And we recognize that, you know, no one organization or group um, has exclusive insight into what needs to be done or the best way in which to do it. Uh, so this really provides a platform and a uh, common access um, to all of these different groups uh, to contribute to and to benefit from uh, the collective support and and political will to really address this in a head-on way. All right. Well, again, that uh, website is masspick, M-A-S-P-I-K dot C-A, much more as well at C-I-J-A dot C-A. Uh, Shimon, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Rob, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. All the best to you. Take care. Uh, Shimon Fogel is president and CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, C-I-J-A dot C-A. Once again, it's an opportunity for a conversation about uh, what CEOs, uh, CEOs earn, what the uh, CEO of your company earns. As the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives likes to point out, uh, at some point today, most CEOs will have already earned more than their average employee is going to earn all year long. So what does that suggest? Does it suggest that we've got a problem with uh, excessive CEO compensation in Canada? Do we have a problem with inequality in Canada? And if so, what is the answer to all of that? Or is it something that should concern us? Obviously, CEOs are, are highly sought after. It's a competitive global market. Uh, CEOs are compensated differently than they once were, I suppose. That, that's part of it. And if a company is doing well, then its CEO is going to do well. But how relevant should it be in terms of what the average Canadian salary is versus what a CEO earns? Because there are a lot of people who own or who earn millions and millions of dollars each year. Entertainers, professional athletes, etc. Is that just as relevant? Uh, but anyway, joining us to talk about their uh, annual report on CEO compensation, which you can read, by the way, at policyalternatives.ca. Very pleased to welcome in the program uh, David McDonald. He's a senior economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. David, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, talk a bit about why uh, you guys do this report, why, why you see this as important information that, that Canadians should have. Yeah, I mean, we often talk about income inequality in the top 1% or top 0.1%, but those are often fairly vague and nebulous. Who is that top 1%? They seem somewhat mysterious in some sense, I suppose. And so one of the goals of this report is to take a look at some section of the, the richest Canadians and put a, uh, put a, a face on this top 1%. Who are these folks? Uh, what do they look like? What, uh, you know, how do they make their money? Who do they work for? Uh, how do they get to where they are? Uh, and so then we can examine in a bit more detail that, uh, you know, the top 1% by, by really, you know, taking a much more detailed look at, 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 at who, who fits into that group. Uh, so this year, and I guess, you know, you do this annually, so you can at least look to the changes year over year. So what was different about the, the previous year compared to, to 2017, or to 2018, rather? Well, this is a new all-time high in terms of average CEO pay. That's not unusual. It's not always a new high. Last year, for instance, it wasn't, but the trend line is pretty clear. 
so the average CEO uh, makes 100 and, sorry makes um, 11.8 million dollars. Um, that's 227 times more than the average worker in Canada who makes 52 thousand dollars. And so what that means is that by 10:09 a.m. today, January 2nd, so this morning, uh, the richest CEO would have already made the the entire annual earnings of the average Canadian worker. Um, that CEOs make more than the average worker, I don't think is terribly surprising and not really that interesting, really. What is interesting, I would say, is the, is the ratio between what CEOs make and what the average worker makes and how that's changing over time. So we've hit an all-time high in terms of the ratio with CEOs making 227 times what the, the average worker makes. Uh, that compares to, say, in the 100 times range that we saw in the 1990s or in the 20 times range, which is what we would have seen in the, the 70s. Uh, and so we've seen a big increase in terms of the gap between what CEOs make and what average workers make, you know, 20 times in the 70s, 220 times, 227 times today. And I think that's what should be concerning and is, is the broader issue around income inequality is, is that when the economy or a company does well, certainly CEOs do well, uh, but do the average, does the average worker also do well? And it's a particularly interesting question now when we have very low unemployment rates on average in Canada, um, but we don't see big increases in pay for, for the average worker anyway. Uh, now, in terms of why it matters, I mean, and I'll confess, I, I'm, I don't know what the CEO of uh, the company that owns this radio station earns. Maybe I, I could find it on the list there, but... Should it matter to me? Why should this matter to to Canadians? Well, there's a couple there's a couple reasons. Um, the first is it should matter if we're subsidizing it. Uh, so if we've got some sweetheart tax deals for the richest execs that aren't available for other Canadians, uh, then that should definitely concern us because we're giving a tax break to the the richest CEOs and executives, and that's certainly the case. It does appear that there will be some action on tax loopholes this year in this year's budget that'll come out in February or March, uh, certainly on the stock option deduction. In part, the reason why CEOs can get these sweetheart tax deals is they're paid differently. So uh, most Canadians get a salary or get a, you know, an hourly wage and they're paid in money and cash. Uh, CEOs do get a base salary, cash, um, but most of their, their wages are, are variable. So they're, they're a bonus in essence. Uh, and that bonus can come in the form of cash, but it can also come in the form of stocks. So you get paid in stocks instead of cash, or you get paid in stock options. Uh, again, instead of cash, it gives you the, the option to buy more company stock at a, at a future date at a particular price. And there are sweetheart tax deals for both stock options and, and increases in the, in the value of, of uh, shares through the capital gains inclusion rate. Um, and so those are the types of things that are, that are worth considering is, it, is that federal tax policy, in essence, subsidizes this type of pay because nobody gets paid in stock options outside of rich execs, in essence. Um, the other reason why I think it's important is that high income inequality can be corrosive. So if you see on the news every day uh, that unemployment is down, that uh, you know economic growth is really good in Canada, that you know the GDP is going up, uh, or, or you see oh, your company did really well this year, but you don't see a big increase in pay, you know maybe your pay is just keeping up with inflation. That's certainly what's happened for the average worker pay. You know you get two percent or so, one or two percent a year, but you're not seeing huge wage gains. Uh, you know, you might think, why am I working so hard? You know, when these CEOs get all the big wage gains, and I don't get the big wage gains, it becomes corrosive to, to hopefully the fact that all Canadians should be working hard and improving our economy and so on. And that's one of the big challenges of income inequality is, this, is that it, it disconnects regular workers from uh, the gains that uh, economic growth should be yielding for them. Okay, let's back up. Let's talk a bit about stocks and, and stock options and, and the tax rates people pay on income that come from those sorts of things. Because as you say, a lot of CEOs are, are paid this way. It's a different kind of taxation as opposed to straight up salary. But at the same time, I mean, a lot of Canadians own stock, maybe have a, a, a stock program through their employer, have shares in, in their in their accounts, their retirement accounts, etc. So, well, we, I mean, if we're going to change those those rates and what people pay on those kinds of, of income sources like dividends, it's uh, capital gains, etc., that's going to impact a lot of people. It may. It depends on how you design it. Uh, and so what you can do is you can create a ceiling. I mean, that's what they're going to do on the stock option deduction. So the, it looks like 200000 If you get paid more than $200,000 in stock options, you won't be able to claim this exemption in any longer. So, uh, and, you know, and if you made $200,000, that's 
it's a pretty decent wage to begin with. You're well into the top one percent in any event, um, and so that's that's the way that you could do that if you were if you're concerned about that. As you put a you put a ceiling on it, in essence. So is that what you're suggesting then? That we we need policies in place then to what to take a bigger a bigger chunk of this income. Well, I think that's exactly what's going to happen in, in 2020. Uh, so certainly for the stock option deduction, it looks like it'll be capped at $200,000 or something along those lines. So whether it's $200,000 in stock options specifically or $200,000 in total income, that once you reach that limit, you don't get the stock option deduction. So you don't get the sweetheart tax deal on stock options. Um, that's been That's been fairly clearly telegraphed. The other piece I think that's going to come out maybe in the spring budget, but certainly sometime in the first half of this year, is that the federal government's targeting another $1.5 billion a year in savings through the closure of tax loopholes in addition to the closure of the stock option deduction. So looking for to raise revenue by closing other types of tax loopholes. It's not clear which ones they want to close at this point. So it's not clear if they want to, they want to play with the, the capital gains rate. It's not clear if they want to play with the... Uh, dividend uh, gross up and, and, and tax credit uh, or, or others. I mean, there's a variety you can choose from. Um, but the, the target's reasonably high at $1.5 billion a year, and they're going to have to find that pretty quickly because they've actually booked the revenue for the, uh, for the next fiscal year starting April 1st. So there will almost certainly be some sort of action on this, this tax loophole side, you know, certainly in the next year. Do you know, and, and I don't know if other organizations do similar calculations in other countries, but I mean, you know, Canada compared to the U.S., Canada compared to, to the U.K. or other European countries or other G7 countries. I, I mean, do, do we have that comparison? Do we know how Canada fares? The situation is worse in the U.S. Uh, that's certainly the case. Uh, I haven't done the big international comparisons among, among other countries. Generally, income inequality more broadly is worse in the U.S. Uh, in Japan and some of the Nordic countries, it's ten- it tends to be less, although for, for different reasons. So it's tax rates are higher in Japan, whereas just underlying pay is somewhat more equal in the, in the Nordic countries. Um, and so in that sense, they do differ in different countries. That's, that's certainly true. Canada's not as bad as the U.S., but uh, it's certainly worse than some European countries. And I mean, because certainly you, you look at some of the countries on this list, I, I mean, they are multinational companies, many of them, and they do business abroad. I, I would assume that it's an international competition uh, for these individuals. I mean, do, is, is that a factor here? I mean, if, if this is the case in other countries, too, does that speak then to how sought after top CEOs are and how there's kind of a, a bidding war for their services? Yeah, I mean, that's, what, that's one of the things we examined this year was to see whether the bidding war story was was actually playing out. I mean, our CEOs swapping around because they get a better offer from some other company, and, and you've got to keep bidding up the price of your CEO, otherwise you lose them. Um, and so in that sense, it's a game of musical chairs, and every you know January 1st, the music stops, and all the CEOs switch chairs to get paid more, and that's why we're seeing this increase in pay. Uh, turns out that's an interesting story. It's not actually true for, for Canadian CEOs. 75% of these richest CEOs were not hired directly into the CEO chair. They were hired lower down in the company, and they, they were promoted up the chain, and they ended up in the CEO chair. On average, they've been with their companies for 18 years. And so, in essence, they're very connected to these companies. They do end up in the CEO chair, largely, likely because they know the company they work for well. They've worked there for a long time. They understand the business lines. They understand the competitors in the industry and so on. Uh, and so the idea that they're somehow switching every year just isn't isn't borne out by the by the data. Most most CEOs are lifers in essence. They start in the company, and as a result, uh, they use the the threat that they're going to leave. But in fact, they despite the fact that we keep seeing higher and higher pay, so presumably you could poach them if you wanted to. There's so much pay out there for CEOs. That's not generally how CEOs arrive at the at the CEO desk. Well, it's interesting too when you're talking about the average. Uh, I think you said around 11 million. Is the average. You've got John Chen at the top of this list with BlackBerry, uh, whose total compensation was $141 million. Nobody else on the, that list uh, comes anywhere close to that. Is, is, is that a unique case, and is that skewing the average a bit here? Is that, are we getting the whole story? Yeah, every year you end up with, well, not every year, but most years, it's not uncommon to have, uh, to have a very highly paid CEO at the very top of that list. And so Chen, even though this, as you rightly point out, is a very high wage, 142 uh, in, in 2018, not the highest we've actually recorded. The highest was actually in 2015 with uh, Michael Pearson. Um, 
And so that's not unusual to have a big high flyer at the top of the list. So one of the things, it, one of the things I wanted to look at instead of just looking at the average was to look at the range. So yeah, we've got this person at the very top who makes an insane, a more insane amount than just the, just the regular wage. So what's the minimum wage for these top CEOs to get on this list in the first place? And that's actually also increased a fair amount. So this year you had to make 6.1 million. That's the minimum wage, the lowest paid, you know, the person in the hundredth position made 6.1 million. Um, that's actually much higher than what we saw a decade ago when we started this, where the minimum wage was in the $3 million range. It's actually doubled. So to get on the list, you need to make twice as much as you used to make in the, uh, in the, you know, about a decade ago. So it's certainly true. There's often a high flyer, uh, at the very top of the list, but even to get on the list, uh, we've actually seen that that average go up as well. All right. Well, people can read uh, this for themselves. Again, policyalternatives.ca. David, thank you for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks for the call. All right. David McDonald, Senior Economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.